This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, the American Enterprise Institute's John Fortier provides his guide to understanding the electoral college process. His book, After the People Vote, a guide to the electoral college. He's interviewed by author and former editor-in-chief of the Texas Review of Law and Politics, Tara Ross. John, it's good to see you. It's been a long time. We've both been working on electoral college issues for a couple of decades, but we haven't had a chance to work together in a while. So I'm glad to see you here today. Well, thank you for uh, to C-SPAN and thank you uh, to you for, for doing this conversation. I know we're talking about After the People Vote, my recent book, but uh, you've had many books over the years of the electoral college, which I've really profited from. So thank you to, to having this conversation. <laughs> well, it goes both ways. So I was really happy to see that you had come out with a new edition of After the People Vote. I, I relied heavily on your third edition when I was working on one of my earlier books. So it's fun to talk to somebody that knows a lot about the Electoral College. And you and I both have a shared goal of helping people to understand the system, which a lot of people don't understand. And that's what your book is about. So I thought it would make sense just to start at the beginning, just start with Election Day in November and just take it step by step. And, and walk people through it chronologically, and hopefully that will help everybody to understand our favorite constitutional institution just a little bit better, um, or at least my favorite constitutional institution. So describe what's happening on election day. In November, people think that they are going to go vote for the president, but of course they're not voting for the president. What is happening on that day? Get us started. Well, first, maybe I could back up briefly and say, you, know, you mentioned this is the fourth edition. There was a third edition back after the 2000 election. This is a book that goes back really almost 40 years to an earlier editor, Walter Burns, a, a mentor of mine, um, who started in 1980 with a series of questions about the Electoral College. And that's still the core of the book today. There are a lot of other pieces, uh, essays around it about history and pro and con and public opinion. But the core of the book really is trying to answer people's basic questions about the election. So I, so I think you're right to start uh, here at, at the beginning. Um, but maybe I'll even move you slightly before uh, Election Day, because there's this question of the electors. People know about the Electoral College. Well, there are people called electors. They're selected ultimately through our voting process, and they, they cast votes later in December. We'll get to that. But early on, even before the November election, uh, the, the states or the, the parties associated with the states are picking groups of electors. One, let's say the last election associated with Donald Trump, uh, one associated with Joe Biden, and that's for each state. Uh, and each state has a, a certain number of electors. Uh, they are, uh, it's based on population roughly, but two for the two for the state, each state, because the Senate has two uh, senators. And then however many representatives the state has in Congress. Uh, so the smallest states have three, the largest California 55, you have a, a wide range of numbers of electors. But who are these people? They're, they're not known to the American people. They're, they're somewhat anonymous. They are picked as really party loyalists. Uh, people who are uh, loyal to the Republican Party and Donald Trump would be selected as potential Donald Trump's electors and vice versa for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden electors. Uh, they, they are picked by usually the party committee or a party convention, slightly differently in every state. But again, the point really is there are people who are very, very likely to be loyal to the, to the, the party that they, that they support. And these slates of electors, most states, you don't see them on the ballot. But there are a few states where if you squinted, you'd see a little mm -hmm. list of people and you wouldn't recognize them, but 
they would be below Joe Biden's name or, or Donald Trump's name, and and they would be those electors you're voting for. In the other states, it's implied you're voting for them. In law, you'll 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 be casting that vote for for Biden or, or Trump, but you're really voting for these people. But that's where the process really starts in this whole uh, after the people vote exercise, where these electors are selected, they're put on the ballot in a sense, uh, and when you vote in November, your vote which seems like it's for Trump or Biden, really is to elect these people who will then show up later in December to cast the votes of what we call you know, colloquially the Electoral College. I love that you brought up that point because people, I think, sometimes have the misperception that electors, there's just 38 people for Texas or just 55 people for California, but they're actually literally a Democratic slate and a Republican slate and when we get to the Electoral College vote later in this conversation, that becomes important because it makes them a lot less likely to be, quote unquote, faithless electors. So um, to go back to the election day, what do you say to people who say, I have a right to vote for president on the general election day? What, what, is, what is not quite right about that? Well, I, I think uh, what you're getting at is there's not a, a generalized right to vote for president in, in the Constitution. Um, and, you know, I hinted at it before that when you're voting for president, uh, we, we certainly have elevated these two candidates. They're going to one of them is going to become president. But the, the vote is is indirect and your vote is really going to be cast for uh, for this this other person. And so uh, these other set of people, the, the, the electors. Um, so your vote uh, matters. And, and I guess you know, we, we could back up a little bit more and say uh, the Constitution really gives uh, a, a body or a, a institution, the power to, to say how these electors are, are selected, and that's the state legislatures. So each state and their, their legislature has the power to figure out how it's going to pick these electors. Today, uh, the one thing common states have is they, they all have popular elections. They're very different types of popular elections. They have an election code. Massachusetts election code is different than Texas's election code. But the, the common thread is that you as a voter are now um, going to vote under these laws that the legislature has passed, and they've determined that that's the path that they're going to use to pick the electors. Just to note, uh, early on in our history, uh, many states, not all, we, at the beginning we had a, a variety of things, but states would, would pick their electors directly. The state legislatures would not have a popular election. They would select them directly. We also have some complicated district systems. We have a, a little bit now, but we had some more complicated ones in the past. So there are a variety of ways in which these, these electors could be selected. So again, from an individual's right to vote for president, there could be these arrangements. But for practical purposes, I think we all realize today, you know, we do vote through these election codes that were the, you know, and that's the way the legislatures today have, have set in place the way in which we, the voters, start electing these electors who then elect the president. Okay, so you go to the poll on election day, you see a ballot in front of you. It may or may not have the name of the president on it. It might, it probably does, but it might have the electors names instead. Um, this is a ballot that's been created by the state because they have decided to, to do that, to um, allocate their electors through a, a popular vote within the state. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between a winner-take-all allocation of those votes and a congressional district allocation of those votes? Yes, uh, and we again, I mentioned early on, we had a lot of systems with districts, meaning somehow the state 
was allowing a, a, a popular vote, but they were doing it not uh, a statewide vote, which picked all of the electors they do, but, but had a, a district system. Today, we have two states that have some, one form of these systems, and, and that those are Maine and Nebraska. Uh, Maine has two members of Congress and two senators, so they have four electoral votes, and Nebraska has two and three, so they have five. Uh, but the way they've set up their system is that uh, instead of like every other state in the country, where if you win the state by just one popular vote, you get all of the electors, uh, you get only two electors for winning the state, and then you get one elector from each of the congressional districts you've won. This used to be a bit of trivia for electoral college people because it was in the laws, but it had never worked out that anybody had won this. Um, but we go back to, to uh, Barack Obama had won it, won in Nebraska in the, in the one congressional district. Donald Trump has won uh, twice in the main congressional district. And then in this last election, Joe Biden uh, also won in Nebraska again. So we've seen both of those states now split their, their, um, their electors, the way they've allocated them, uh, three to one for Democrats to Republicans in Maine and four to one for Republicans over, over Democrats in, in Nebraska. And, you know, it's, it's possible other states could do this, but it's, it's a quirky feature that two, two still have and is, is a possibility uh, if you wanted to think about other ways you could allocate the electoral votes in states. Okay, so we have this election on election day. Some Most states use winner take all, a couple of use congressional district system. Now, can we talk a little bit about what happens between that date in November and the date when all of these electors go to actually cast their ballots in the uh, presidential election that the constitution provides for, of course. And you have this period of time where states could resolve disputes, which we were all paying attention to this year. And then there's something called the safe harbor deadline. Could you talk about that period of time and what, what the states can and can't do and what the safe harbor deadline means. Yes, yeah, so um, the, the system, uh, the electoral college as we call it system or, or a system in the, in the constitution is a state-based system. So states have a lot of variety of, of uh, how they hold elections and how they count and recount and ultimately certify their votes. So there's a different process in every state. I do think you know it's important to remember this, that. Um, founders thought that the state's decision was, was really the most important thing. We can get into later whether, whether Congress or other institutions might have some say in, in the, the counting of the, of the votes, but really the core decision is made by the states. And so uh, each state follows through on its process to hold the election, to count the votes, to recount the votes, to maybe have judicial contests. And we hope those are resolved quickly, but you know, there's quite a variety of states that Sometimes some plan to take longer, some plan to take shorter. You did mention another date. Um, a very important date, of course, is when the electors meet in December. This it was December 14th this year. Um, but there's a date a few days before that, six days before, which some is called the safe harbor date. Uh, and that date is important for a couple of reasons. One, there's a law um, which, which Congress passed a long time ago, which, which lays out some aspects of the, the counting of the electoral votes. And it really strongly, I'd say, encourages states to have their elections completed by six days before the electors vote, by December 8th this year. And the reason for that, one of the reasons, of course, is uh, just to make sure that they have in place those electors uh, by the 14th so that they're ready to vote, because it's, that's the date. Um, now, that date, uh, there's, there's some dispute about how, what, what that date means, but 
if we go back to the year 2000 with our uh, dispute in Florida, the very close election we had, it became very significant. The Supreme Court really uh, pointed to it uh, in, in, its, in its Bush v. Gore case. And, you know, again, in this case, it basically said to, to the state of Florida, which was counting and recounting the votes and had missed their deadlines in many ways and was still going to be counting <clears throat> that the that the states are that really they should be done uh, by the eighth that they, that, that the, the state legislature wanted to get done by the eighth and that if, if Florida had wanted to keep counting they, they really there was no time left for them to devise new processes for counting so there's some debate about whether that's a drop dead date when states absolutely have to get it done but I think it's a very important date really states should try to get their elections completed by the 8th of December this year so that they're ready to vote on the 14th. Do you want to talk a little bit about the 1876 election and the disputes that happened then, which prompted, of course, uh, the statutes that we have now that where we got the safe harbor deadline and some of these other other mechanisms that we use? Yes, I mean, and, and uh, people who follow the Electoral College will know that we've had a variety of elections over the years that we point to and and, and frankly, I think 1876 was our, our greatest election crisis. Um, <laughs> without you know, getting into all the details, uh, we had a, a, a very serious uh, election counting crisis where we almost did not know the identity of the president uh, until Inauguration Day. And Inauguration Day back then was in March. So we spent a very long time in the States, but, but more even in Congress, really trying to sort out who the winner was. And the the particular set of difficulties that year were related to what we sometimes will call you know, two, have, states having two different slates of electors appointed. I will say that you know this, this is a rare thing, and you know, frankly, it really should never happen, uh, but we, we've had a couple of instances, one very bad one in 1876, where we had you know, significant, uh, th three especially, but, but several states having two different ideas as to who had won their state election, and therefore pointing two different slates of electors. And frankly, we almost had two state governments. This was after the Civil War and the Reconstruction period where there were you know, rival factions for, for governing. And that posed a very, very difficult problem for Congress. Um, we can get to when Congress counts the votes later, but Congress has a role in counting these votes. And when they came to this, it isn't absolutely clear what you do when it sounds easy to just count, but when you have two lists in front of you, one voting for one presidential candidate, one voting the other from a state, what do you do? You can't just count. You have to figure out which is the right one. And they had some, some great, great difficulties doing that. Uh, and so, so the, um, the, the Electoral Count Act, which was written a number of years later, but in reaction to 1876, um, tried to lay out some ways in which maybe we would we could avoid problems with this again. One of them is by setting this safe harbor deadline to, to have states get their results in more quickly, um, other things as well. So uh, we've had some tough elections. This, the, the book actually does try to cover some of these tough elections. We have a, a essay by Norm Ornstein in, in there, which looks at some of our 19th century elections with problems. Uh, I wrote one also on the 2000 election in, in the piece. So the book tries to cover both the history and some of the answers to these questions. 1876 was something else to say the least. <laughs> so I said I was gonna try to keep this chronological and of course they all these topics all bleed into each other. So that's easier said than done. So I'm gonna take us back to the meetings of the electors in December, which was uh, December 14th this year, I believe. And so um, 
I guess starting with the basics, just where do the electors go? How do they vote? Um, what happens in the 50 states plus DC? Well, um, you I think you've given away the most important point already that um, some people think of the electoral college as one big place where all the electors show up in, together and vote. Um, but the constitution lays out that again, the states are very important uh, institutions in this system and the electors go to their state capitals, basically. They, 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 they meet as 51 separate groups, the District of Columbia and the 50 states, uh, and there they cast their ballots. Uh, now they cast, uh, importantly, we've changed the Electoral College a bit, they cast ballots for president and vice president very early on in this slightly different system, uh, but they cast two separate ballots. Uh, and those ballots are sent on to institutions in Washington. Um, have some certification in the state, but they've gone. They go on to um, the archivist and to the to the um, to the Congress uh, to other places, which ensures that the word of the states gets off to Washington. But it's all done that day on this year, December fourteenth, um, and then there's some period of time before Congress really comes into being, the new Congress, and then counts them. Uh, but part of the part of the electoral conduct was, especially in the days of. You know, before the internet, of, of getting, some, making sure that they had time to get to, to Washington there. So uh, it is, it is an important day, but it's one that happens all across the country in these various states of casting these ballots uh, for president and for vice president, and then ultimately getting those ballots into Congress's hands, who, who performs the next step in the process. So I know that you know that this is a slightly more complicated question than it sounds on its surface. But my question is: <laughs> Do electors have to vote for? the winner of the popular vote in their state? Yes, it is a very complicated question. <laughs> um, and you're right about this. Um, so uh, some, sometimes people have heard the term uh, a faithless elector, and that, that basically refers to someone who votes in a way that was unexpected or, or maybe against what they really should do. Uh, so again, if a uh, if an elector, let's say a slate of electors were selected from New Hampshire for Joe Biden, the elected this year there, he won that state. Those four electors, maybe one of them would say, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden like I'm supposed to, but I'm going to vote for Donald Trump or, or I'm going to vote for a third person, another you know, person who maybe wasn't on the ballot uh, in November. Uh, we, have, we have had that over the years. Uh, we, we, the book counts them. There are different ways to count them, but we count the ones at least for president. And, and you know, they've mostly been a handful of people, somewhat protest votes. They've never change the outcome in that way, but uh, it is something that is possible to happen. Um, but the question you ask is a little trickier. Are they allowed to do this and how and why? Um, states, many states, not all, uh, bind their electors. They say, we want you to vote the way the state voted and told you to vote. So if, if you're a, a Donald Trump slate of electors and our state voted for Donald Trump, you're, you should be voting for Donald Trump. Um, but then some states um, don't have much of a penalty for that. They say you're supposed to do it, uh, don't have a penalty. Other states in the past have had some, had some mild pen penalties, some fines. Um, and when I wrote the third edition of the book, it was really left like that, that there were some mix of either some very minor penalties or, or this uh, uh, no, no penalty at all. There was one state, North Carolina, which had a slightly different uh, setup. And the reason I point to that is because in recent years, and this is important for this new edition of the book, 
we did have some changes in state laws and states have, have uh, a number of them, 16 or so, have uh, put in place stronger laws, which really make it um, almost impossible for some of these electors to vote uh, in the way that they're not supposed to vote. Uh, and that, that, that law basically says, if you're, a, you're selected and you're bound to vote for Donald Trump as an elector, but you go vote for someone else, well, we're gonna replace you. We're gonna pull you out. You're not an elector anymore. We're gonna put somebody else in place and that person will perform the duty in the proper way. We'll cast the vote for Donald Trump like he or she was supposed to. Um, there was a real question of whether that was constitutional or not. And that uh, he went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took a while to get from the last election to this, this past summer in 2020. And the court, and I, I frankly was a, was a little surprised by the decision, but the court did uphold these laws and said, um, yes, states may have these, these types of provisions. Uh, so we're left with kind of a, we've always had a mishmash, but we have kind of a mishmash of state laws. We have some that don't have any penalty, some that um, bind, but bind, but don't have any penalty. And then we have this sixth group of 16 where I think it really would be almost impossible according to the current Supreme Court decision for the, for the electors to vote the other way. So um, you, we've had cases, 2016 was one of them where people have tried to rally the electors. Maybe they should change their minds, not vote for Donald Trump or add a third candidate. Um, that's still possible in some states, perhaps. Uh, but again, some states were, are going to forbid this. The last thing I'll say is, just from a practical standpoint, um, it's not that likely that these people are going to vote the wrong way because of how they were selected. We talked about that at the beginning. They are selected as very loyal party people. And so, especially if it were close and you'd be throwing the election away from your own party, it seems very you know, unlikely that someone would do that. But again, it's, it's possible in some places and not possible in others. Yeah, I think um, one thing to note about the 2016 faithless electors is that they were all on the losing side of the equation, right? If they had been voting for the winning person, it's very, very unlikely that they would have changed their vote. And historically, that's that's how that has been. Um, I'm sorry if I missed this, but did you, in response to the 2016 election in particular, did states make, have has there been like an influx of states changing in response to that 2016 election? And you have this wonderful appendix at the back of your book and it's got all these lists of which states do and don't bind electors. And, and I haven't had a chance to study the one that you did for the fourth edition, but the third edition one I found really, really helpful. And have you noticed, um, is that just a gradual change over time, I guess is the question, or was that a specific response to 2016? So it is a change over time, uh, but it wasn't in response to 2016. It was really um, done before. There was uh, there were some formalized efforts. The American Bar Association had an effort. There's some some of them follow that law particularly, but there was a, a process in the last 10 plus years or so where a number of states started to adopt these. Um, there was some question after 2016 because we had some of these laws try to be implemented for the first time, uh, and so there was there have been some changes, but it. It predates 2016, but but not all the way back to the, the earlier 2000s, but I put out the earlier edition of my book there. It was extraordinarily rare. There was one state, North Carolina, and now we're up to about 16 that have some, some form of this very strong method of replacing electors who don't vote the right way. I suspect there'll be more discussion in state legislatures this year, and, and we'll, we'll debate it, I guess, in state legislatures. So uh, somehow or another, we have never quite gotten this historical example in. So before we move on to the next chronological step, I'm going to throw it out there. <laughs> we haven't talked about 1960 and Hawaii and what happened 
And so the question has to do with what happens if election controversies are not resolved by the time the electors meet, which of course some people felt this year and we don't have to have that debate, but what, what happens when there is still an unresolved problem at the meetings of the electors? Yes, I mean, this is this is sometimes uh, was thought to be somewhat of an obscure precedent, but we started to talk about <laughs> it more in this election. Um, so, so the 1960 election between John F. Kennedy uh, and Richard Nixon was a close one, both in the popular vote and the electoral college vote. Uh, it turns out the state of Hawaii at the time, when when the votes had been cast in November, but then also by the time that the electors were casting their ballots in December, Hawaii hadn't finished all of its election counting or recounting processes. And Richard Nixon was ahead, or at least ahead in an initial count. And uh, electors were appointed that were Nixon electors. He had won, uh, he was ahead in Hawaii, so they were ready and they voted that day, um, as you would if, if you were appointed electors. Well, there was some dispute because this election was perhaps going on with some recounting. So the, the Democratic electors, the John F. Kennedy electors, also decided to meet that day and cast some votes. Now, they didn't have any official sanction at that point. Um, and so, you know, now we've got two groups of electors, one with official set of state things and, and the other one not. And we have more counting in Hawaii. And it turns out that John F. Kennedy wins uh, Hawaii. And so now the state governor ultimately sends a letter and says, these, we were wrong. These, these electors, uh, the real ones are the JFK electors. And, and actually they voted already. So conveniently, we're going to certify that that was the, the, the slate. Um, that's a very complex, uh, obscure set of facts. But one point is we get to Congress and Congress sometimes has to wrestle with this, you know, what's in front of it. And so here they have a slate of electors what, that say Nick, Nixon won. And they have this other slate with a letter from the governor saying, no, 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 it's really this, this group. Uh, and ultimately, the, the Nixon was actually sitting in the chair as the vice president when all this counting was going on. And he said, look, I don't have a dispute with uh, the, the fact that, that JFK won Hawaii. It didn't actually make a difference in the election. It wasn't going to change the result. Um, and he sort of said to Congress, as long as you don't mind, we're just going to count that. That, that set of electors. And um, look, it seemed like a pretty harmless precedent because it you know, didn't undo any election and not, not many people thought about it. But you know, it came up at this election too. I mean, you raised the question of, well, can, can electors really vote after the date of, of December 14th? Or in this case, they, they voted that day, but they weren't the real electors then. They only got to be made real electors later. There was more counting going on. I think the big answer probably is that we shouldn't be doing any of this, right? We shouldn't be counting after the, the electors vote. Once they vote, it should be done. You should resolve the election by then. But we opened up this little door to that, to that precedent. Um, the reason it became interesting this past election is there were several states where, uh, in some cases, it was the Donald Trump electors who were on the losing side, in places like Pennsylvania, um, or in, even in a state like Arizona, where it was some other people, not the, not the electors who were on the ballot, but some other people who supported Donald Trump sort of voting on the day of the Electoral College meets on December 14th and sending in some results and saying, for the most part, hey, we're, we're waiting, just like in Hawaii, that maybe some court or state legislature or the governor will say, no, no, actually Donald Trump won and we're the real electors. 
It didn't happen. Uh, no, nobody actually sent anything about that. And interestingly, just a very small tidbit, the way when the vice president, Mike Pence, was counting the or was, was presiding over the counting of the vote, um, he, he had an interesting formulation, which was different from the past, saying, hey, we're going to read the, the votes of, of places that have certified their election. The state has actually said this is the set of electors and not just this other group of people who say they're the electors and don't have any state sanction. So it's a complicated precedent. I, I somehow wish we'd never gone down that road. I wish it were a much clearer line that said, really, you do need to resolve the election by December 14th. I think that would be the better practice. We have this little crack in the door from that from that precedent, which some had referred to in, in this past election. You know, I have thought, given that the Constitution puts the state legislatures in charge of the allocation of presidential elect electors, um, if it was it a bit of a problem that so many of them were out of session during all of this mess. And I wondered if maybe state legislatures can fulfill the responsibility under the Constitution by making sure they always have an outlet to call themselves into special, special session as needed. And whether it's just to squash things faster or to make sure things are taken care of or, or whatever it is. But I, it just struck me that part of the problem was that state legislators who are supposed to be in charge were nowhere to be found, sometimes because they couldn't be. And um, I agree with you that the faster we can resolve some of these problems, the better for, for uh, just the stability of our system. Um, so, so now we're going to move forward to the, we've kind of already done it a little bit, but we'll <laughs> formally go there and to the counting of elect of electors on January 6th in a joint session of Congress. So can you just describe for us, not in a year where things are disputed, but just in a normal year, like what would that process look like? What is the procedure? Who does what? And what, what is the sequence of events? Yes. Yeah, so, so first maybe to back up, because we've made one important change in our history on this. Um, so Congress does meet and the constitution says they're going to be there for the counting of the votes and, the, and they're in a joint session, which means uh, the House and the Senate are meeting together as one body and uh, the vice president or the president of the Senate, if the vice president's not there, is going to preside over this, this counting process that the Congress does. Um, the one change we've made is that uh, until we passed the 20th amendment earlier in the, in the 20th century, uh, it used to be the old Congress that did this, the lame duck Congress. Uh, you, you could say almost the losing Congress. The, uh, you can imagine uh, what if a presidential election is decided and the incumbent is thrown out by a big landslide and the incumbent's party in Congress is thrown out by a big landslide. Well, in the old system, that thrown out party in Congress is still sitting there counting the votes. Here, it really is supposed to be the new Congress, um, which is counting the votes based on the election results from November. So important point that you have Democrats being in charge, uh, this year was a little complicated because we had the 50-50 the Senate result, but in theory, we would have a new Congress with a new result from the election decided counting. Um, what does it look like? I mean, Congress does meet occasionally in joint session. It's not that common, uh, but this is the big one where they, they meet this way. Um, and ultimately, the, it usually goes without much fanfare, but the vice president uh, is in the chair. Uh, each the House and the Senate appoint a couple of uh, tellers that are important committee chairs and ranking members of important committees who, who Democrats and Republicans, who read out loud the results that come from the states and do so alphabetically. So you, know, you start with Alabama and you say, here we have the, the electors that we believe uh, the state of Alabama is certified that are 
that are for Donald Trump. And uh, they, they could hear objections. That's where it gets tricky. But uh, presumably they read. And for the most part, it, you tend to go through the alphabet, get the final count, you add up all the votes. And, you know, at that point, that's when you have the most official president-elect. I mean, you could argue about when a president-elect comes into being. But certainly uh, that, at that point, Congress has put its stamp or it said it's counted it correctly and we have a, have a president. Uh, I, you, I mentioned elector uh, uh, objections. You, you hinted at them. Uh, there is the possibility of objections. And here the, the Electoral Count Act tries to lay out some of the processes for how that goes forward. The, the basic point is that uh, both a member of the House of Representatives uh, and a member of the Senate would have to both agree to an objection for it to be really considered by the House and the Senate. And if that happened, the, the joint session would split uh, into the House of Representatives as a body, the Senate as a body, and those two bodies would then go consider the objection. Should we or not, should we count this set of electors or not? Um, tricky questions as to what they would do if they're two slates of electors, whether they're throwing out or preferring one or the other, but th this is supposed to be a rare process. Under the Electoral Count Act after 1876, it was, it was very rare for this to happen. All the way up to 2000, it had only happened once that there was really any objection. And that was 1969. And I would say it was on something more of a technical issue related to the faithless electors. It wasn't a political issue as much. Um, and they divided, they considered it, and they, they kept the faithless elector as, as, as cast. Uh, starting in 2000, we, we have started to see uh, more objections. And of course, this year, people watched and most famously saw many objections. And of course, the horrible, the horrible violence uh, in, in the middle of that, that counting. Um, but in 2000, uh, a number of Democrats in the House objected to the results of, from the Florida slate of electors. No senator seconded that. So we didn't have a division of the, of the bodies, but we had these objections. Again, we had had only once in over 100 years had any objections. Uh, in 2004, slightly more serious, where the House, again, House members made some objections to the, the counting of the vote in Ohio, the one state that divided George Bush and, and, and John Kerry. Uh, and one senator supported that uh, objection, went to the House and the Senate, and they voted. Now, they didn't vote to, to, to throw out the electors, but some, some people did to vote to throw out those electors. Uh, again, in 2016, we had some Democrats making um, some objections to uh, the Trump election. No senator came along with it. Uh, and then in 2020, just now, we, we had very significant numbers of people, uh, two states where we had both um, number of House objections, um, senators supporting them, and you know, large numbers of the House and, and bigger than one or two members of the, of the Senate uh, supporting uh, overthrowing these results in these states, although not enough to, to actually change those two results, uh, less than a majority. So it's a, it's a process. You know, I, I, I do think that we would probably be better off uh, just realizing that, that Congress really should almost never be having these objections. I, I don't want to say never, because I think there are some cases, maybe 69 is, is a reasonable case where um, there's a question about the electors. What if you had two slates of electors, maybe some extreme case. But for the most part, Congress should be counting the electors as presented to them because it was the states that had the process made the decision. So again, I'm not going to say never, but I'm going to say 
there it would be extremely rare and we would be wise to not uh, have objections in a regular way as we've been having uh, or in, in the big way that we had them in 2020 because it really is more about the states selecting the electors based on their laws and Congress's role is primarily just to count them. Yeah, we're in agreement that the bar needs to be very high uh, before Congress. It, it, it's, it's duty and counting should be sort of narrow in my view also. Um, one historical example where Congress did reject some votes that probably did fit in that narrow exception would be in 1872 when Horace Greeley passed away. Do you wanna talk about that? And they did, they went through the whole process with the objections and they debated whether Horace Greeley was a person within the meaning of the constitution. And do you wanna talk about that historical example? Yes, uh, I mean, briefly, what, one thing to note is not that there wasn't a law in place at that point, but the, the current law, the Electoral Conduct, was not in place until, until later. Mm -hmm. And so the, the forum, the way in which we have objections was slightly different. But you know, there's, there's basically a question of uh, should, and, and, and you know, arguably, I think you're right in terms of the, the, the issue there was more about how the electors cast their votes rather than the states in the sense that you know, Horace Greeley had died. And uh, the question of, of the um, electors, whether one counts them for a, for a, a deceased candidate or not was an issue. And, and I think that's more of an issue that is in, in you know, more properly in Congress's hands. Again, if you think about counting, um, for the most part, counting is very simple, but then there's a question of, well, what if there's a problem with, with X? And, and there, there was this question. So uh, I, I, you know, I think there are some legitimate areas where Congress uh, can get into this, but I, I would try to circumscribe them for the most part. <laughs> okay, so a couple of points and um, before we wrap up this and move on to the, to the next final phase, I guess that could occur uh, in the election, which is the House contingent, contingent election. But the question is, so if there's 538 electors that could be appointed, so if fewer than 538 are appointed, talk about what happens then, but also generally what, what happens if nobody gets a majority? Yes, I mean, the first question is, is a little difficult uh, because <laughs> for the most part uh, today, we do have uh, all the electors appointed. Uh, early, in the early days, we really did have some cases where you know, a state didn't get around to it or a couple electors didn't show up to vote. And so um, there was a question of maybe, you know, it's a majority of a smaller number. Uh, one other difficulty is if Congress really does throw out ballots, and again, I, I'm you know, cautious we should almost never do this, they could either throw out the slate of electors saying um, the state just didn't do this right and the state isn't represented at all. It's, that's controversial, but or they could just throw out the votes, uh, and you know that that matters depending on you know, depending on how they do that. It matters what the what the majority is. Then, if you if you just throw out the the votes, well, you you might not get to the majority of, of all those people. You throw out the slate, it changes the it changes the denominator essentially. Mm -hmm. But coming back to your easier question is if <laughs> if no one gets the a majority of the electoral college, and that that could be um, a tie, for example, that's another possibility. No one gets a an absolute majority of those, nobody gets to 270 in our current system. Um, then uh, the, the selection of the president is going to go to the House of Representatives. And if the same thing were to happen in the, the vice presidential votes, the, the selection of the vice president would go to the Senate. Now, the, the thing that is different about the House in this case is the House doesn't vote in its normal way, just a simple majority. 
the House votes by state delegation. And, and this is how I think the, the Electoral College is really connected to all of the other decisions the founders made about the legislature. The legislature has one part that's representative of states, the Senate and the other on population. And in this case, they made a kind of interesting compromise to say the House is gonna vote again, uh, the state of Florida, all of its representatives would vote. And if it were a majority of them were, were the Republicans, it would be one vote for Donald Trump uh, and other states would do the same. The trick is you need 26 states, not just a majority of, uh, of those voting. Uh, you could have some delegations that are split, for example. You might not have, you might have a state that has two representatives from each party and doesn't cast a vote, essentially. So you'd have to get 26 votes. Uh, interestingly, Republicans, uh, you know, were, were right around that uh, barrier last time. So if, if Donald Trump had gone into that election somehow, perhaps, Republicans, if they'd stuck with him, would have would have elected Donald Trump that way. So that's the the contingent election. The Senate uh, looks a little more like the Senate. It's a more majority vote for the for the for the vice president. If for some reason the the House can't get to that twenty six, well, then the, then there's the vice president. So you could end up with um, one oddity is that you know, maybe the Senate is in different hands. Maybe the Senate's in the other party's hands, and you would have ended up with you know. President Biden and, and and Vice President Mike Pence, or maybe you would end up with President Mike Pence because Vice President Biden wasn't able to be elected by the House. Um, so, you know, there there are some oddities. You know, we we have not seen this in an extremely long time, and so it's uh, something that that doesn't come about uh, often. Thankfully, I, I think one one other thing to note that I think is important is sometimes people get confused the difference between an election that Congress just can't resolve and an election where no one has a majority. Um, the 1876 case was one where Congress really couldn't resolve it at least until the very end, but that didn't mean that there was no majority. That didn't mean that they went to the house automatically. It meant they were stuck. And in the worst case scenario, they, they might've just not been able to pick a president at all until inauguration day. And then at least I believe the, the, the Presidential Succession Act would come in and, and under our current law, the Speaker of the House would become president. Um, the other scenario is somehow you do get to a final count, but it's no one has a majority, a tie, three candidates, um, no one gets 270, then you have this House. But the, the deadlocked election does not lead to the contingent election in the House. Right, that is a good point. Um, I always think about the election of 1800, which took 36 ballots before they finally decided that Thomas Jefferson was going to be the winner. Um, he had, of course, tied with Aaron Burr, who didn't have the, the good grace to buy, bow out like he should have. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about, there are, there are rules, of course, that govern this House cont contingent election, not just voting in state delegations, but rules about quorum and rule about, do you count a majority or plurality in state delegations when they're voting? There's the, And there was a small differences between the 1801 and 1825 rules. Do you have any thoughts about that and what would happen to some of those rules if we were to have to do this in four years? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the big one to point to uh, of those rules differences just the, is just the question of, uh, what happens to a state with which does not have um, a, a majority of their their people electing someone? So um, having a uh, a state that uh, doesn't have a um, 
as a tie or in their, their delegation, for example, uh, is not going to count towards uh, the winner, but could keep someone from getting that ultimate majority. And, um, you know, I think that, that could lead to some confusion. Uh, and it does raise the possibility that you might not have a, a, the House be able to pick someone. I think sometimes people think, well, it's the House is just going to pick someone. Well, you know, you look at a lot of the time, we we might not have a majority of state delegations in the hands of one party or the other. So I think that's the, the bigger point. So you alluded to it before, but can you talk about the presidential succession rules that would apply if the House just could not come to a decision and maybe throw in a little bit about why the Speaker might actually turn down the opportunity to be acting president? Yes. Um, so you know, we, we do have this, um, we've had various presidential succession acts over the years, but we have a presidential succession act and it, it applies in a lot of different circumstances. The most obvious one is when uh, the president dies or the president, the vice president, especially uh, there would be, you would go to the next in the line of succession, but it also comes into play when, you know, an impeachment a resignation, disability, and perhaps if no one is selected president. So um, you get to January 20th and the office is vacant because Congress can't decide. And, and I mentioned in 1876, this is what almost happened. We came you know, very, very close to, to not having a resolution of that election by January 20th. Uh, the current law is that the speaker would become president of the United States. Uh, I could go into a long history of this. I think there's some who think actually that law is not the best law or might be even unconstitutional to have the speaker in line. But just to answer your direct question, so the speaker, if the speaker were to take over uh, as, as president, um, would be president for four years, but um, perhaps Congress could resolve the, the election later. And so that's, I think, the tricky part. Um, the, the, the speaker would have to leave Congress and leave the position of speaker because you can't serve in the legislative and the executive branches at the same time. And you couldn't go back, or at least directly, you couldn't go back reelected or uh, get back into Congress on your own. Uh, and so uh, the speaker might look at this and say, well, this election, we're still arguing about it in Congress and maybe it'll be resolved next week. And am I going to leave being speaker and show up at the White House, be president for a week and then be out of a job? And so, so there are some problems with having the speaker in the line of succession in this set of circumstances. Uh, and you know, there's some other, the, the president pro tem is also with the line, faces the same sort of issues. But then the other complicated issue is, of course, the cabinet is next. And, you know, we, we might just be left with the old cabinet, the cabinet of the past president, who those people don't have to resign. And if they do, there's some acting people. And I, I think it would be very messy. Let's put it that way. And so, um, Obviously, we've, we've always been able to resolve our elections by that date, even though one time we came very close. Uh, it would be a very good thing if we, we did kept doing that, because I, you know, I think the chaos that that sort of situation would create would be, would be very bad for us. So I know that your book is neutral and does not take sides on the Electoral College, but you do have a couple of essays in there, one from a pro-Electoral College side and one from the uh, not pro-Electoral College side. Do you want to talk a little bit about those those? people who wrote those and the arguments they present. Yes, I mean, the book is a history. So we have a, a, an older essay by Martin Diamond, a great scholar of American uh, political system uh, of institutions. Uh, we've shortened that a bit, an excerpt of that. And then also Walter Burns, uh, who I mentioned is the 
really the founder of this book, ultimately wrote, wrote the first uh, and edited the first two books of this, it was a teacher of mine. Uh, they have written some essays that are pro. Uh, the uh, Akhil uh, Amar and, and his brother, Vikram Amar, law professors, have written uh, an essay uh, from the earlier edition, which, uh, which, was, which, is, which is opposed to it. And look, I, I, uh, I think that there are, there's a lot to say about the, the difference of opinion here. I think one other, one other essay I'd like to point to in the book, which is new and chapter is, is that uh, Carlin Bowman has written a very, very comprehensive piece on public opinion in the Electoral College. And the reason I bring that up is uh, because we do have, at least in recent history, we'll be polling some evidence that you know, a majority of the American people typically have been against the Electoral College or would say, you know, if it we had to start all over again, we might go to the, the national popular vote. But, you know, it's varied at various times in different ways. It's um, never been the, probably the super majority that's needed to change. Uh, so the book leaves for people some, some arguments as to pro and con, but also gives them some evidence of, you know, what public opinion has said about this. Uh, you know, I'll note also that I think the reasons for being for and against the Electoral College have sometimes changed over the years. Sometimes the circumstances have pointed in different directions. And uh, the, the public opinion side really does show that there's a, you know, there's been a big polarization of the views about the Electoral College by party, with uh, Democrats being much more against and Republicans being for it slightly changed by sometimes the election results of a particular election, but, but generally speaking, that's, that's been the divide in more recent years. So um, the last thing we're, we have just a few minutes left. So the last topic I'm going to hit, um, although it's probably got a few issues attached to it is the national popular vote interstate compact, which is also newly mentioned in your book this time around. So can you talk about the, the national popular vote compact, what it is and what's going on with it? Yes, and, and you know, I mentioned the central section of the book is a series of questions about the Electoral College, and you know, that each edition we update with new numbers and new analysis. But we did add some some questions this time, really, to talk about how can you change the Electoral College and you know, what's more traditional way, and what is this new National Popular Vote Compact? You know, the traditional way, I think, people who were against the Electoral College or wanted to move to a national popular vote was to say we should amend the constitution because really not all of these mechanisms we've discussed are in the constitution. Some are in law and some are in, in house and Senate rules, but, but the core of things about uh, the way the electors vote and states appointing electors is in the constitution. So it's a very high hurdle to change that. And so getting two thirds of the house and Senate and three quarters of the state legislatures, there've been some efforts they've gotten far enough, but, but it's very hard to do. It will require an overwhelming consensus. There is a new method that has picked up speed in the last 10, 12 years or so, which is, is meant to move to the national popular vote, but do it in a somewhat indirect way that, that still preserves some of the institutions of the Electoral College. And the insight here is that state or state legislatures have the ability to say how those electors are appointed. And uh, these advocates are trying to persuade state legislatures that have done in some cases uh, to write laws that say we are going to give our votes uh, of the, our electoral votes, not to the winner of our state, not to the winner of California, but to the winner of the national popular vote. So you know, to use this example, if, if Donald Trump had won the, the national popular vote this year, but lost in California, and California is one of the states that has the, this law in the books, uh, that California would actually vote for, for Donald Trump instead of 
Joe Biden, who'd won the state there. Um, now, in addition to that, just to say when this would take effect, uh, this, this would be an effective way of moving the electoral, uh, moving to the national popular vote if you got a number of states adding up to 270 electoral votes to all agree to this. And, and uh, that way, no matter what happened, those, those states would always vote for the popular vote winner and you'd have the electoral college mechanisms, but you'd always get the president being the popular vote winner. Uh, another aspect of this is there's a compact of sorts. So states, uh, the advocates worry, what if a state backed out of this and they have to sort of uh, agree to, to be in this and have a more formal compact? There's some questions about how that would work and whether that was constitutional or not, or what way it would, would have to be done to be constitutional. So, uh, you know, there's, there's some secondary issues about it. It has progressed fairly far. We're, I think, close to 200 uh, states with close to 200 electoral uh, votes have passed this. Primarily, it's been democratically oriented states that have done so. Uh, there have been a couple of states in recent years, small states, the Democrats who decided not to go that way. That was maybe a bit of a surprise to some. Uh, I think the, the simple point is that uh, it is easier to change this way. It's a bit of a halfway house if you get there. But if, if, you, if you needed to get to the 270, you're going to have to have some more purple states or slightly red states adopt this. But it, again, it has made, uh, made headway much more than other reforms. And I think it's probably the chief reform avenue for people who want to change the Electoral College. So um, I should probably offer this full disclosure for anybody that's watching, but I, yeah, I, I testify against the national popular vote. My position on it's pretty, pretty well known, but your position in your book is neutral. So could you please just tell me though, the arguments that will be on either side of this from those who say it's constitutional and those who say it's not constitutional, this national popular vote initiative. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of arguments that are both policy arguments and, and you know, as, as a policy matter, I guess I'm not in favor of it. I, I, I'm not uh, as opposed to the Electoral College uh, and think we should change it. But the constitutional question, I think yeah, there's 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 some there's some arguments on both sides that I guess I'll just lay out. And, and um, I do think that the the advocates do get at this core principle that who are the ultimate people or ultimate institutions that decide how the electors are selected. Those are the state legislatures. And that's true because, you know, back in the day, state legislatures used to do so directly. Uh, but it's also even true today because those legislatures are really the, the people who passed the laws that, that, that are in place that the people use to vote to, to vote for president. So they could do different things. They can have districts, they can elect directly, they can do a number of things. So from that perspective, I think that the idea that the state legislatures would say, we're gonna use our power to, to appoint, to, to go in this different direction is a, you know, is a strong insight. Uh, there are some who argue that it, it, you know, it looks a little funny that the state legislatures would be using some standard that's outside their state. It wouldn't have anything to do with what people in their state thought, it's just uh, the other states thinking. And so you know, that gives me a bit of pause that, um, Maybe we really should expect state legislatures to reflect their state. And then I do think there are some practical questions. I mean, one, one big one, and the advocates are aware of this, they try to resolve these things, but is that how would you have a recount, for example? A state, um, right now, recounts are only done at the state level. We vote different ways in states. And if you had a very close election, national popular vote nationally, you couldn't force all the states to have recounts and they'd have all different laws. And so so because it's something of a halfway house, it does pose some 
practical difficulties of how it would work. I mean, I think another one is either constitutionally or just practically states wanting to pull out of, of this. Um, uh, even if they'd had a compact, well, maybe they still retain the power to appoint electors directly. And you know, it might there be uncomfortable for a state to really want to appoint someone who, who is very different from the, what, the people that would be elected in their own state. And, and if it were a close for election, sure. maybe you'd have some pulling out. For sure. There would definitely be many problems. Well, we are running up against the clock here. And um, I just want to say I'm so glad that you guys put out this fourth edition. And I encourage everybody to go find it and to go to read it and to the appendixes or appendices are wonderful and um, provide a lot of great information about the states and what's going on in the states. And John, it was so fun to, to sit and talk with you for a while today and uh, look forward to working with you again soon. Great. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.